right. You guys all right? That's a lot of announcements. You guys survived. Um, I'm going to have you guys stand. Is that cool? We're going to just read scripture together. Stand one more time. If you guys don't have a Bible, to raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. And we're going to read through John chapter 6. Kind of a lengthy passage. It's for 15 verses. I'm confident you guys can, can survive that. It's going to be good. This is one of those stories that's so, so good. It like preaches itself. That's how good it is. Um, it's such a good story that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them, all of them wrote about this story. All of them. You, there's another story that all four of them included because it's so significant. You guys want to take a guess what that significant story was that they all included other than this one? The resurrection. Yes. So that's this story is literally on par, at least in the minds of those that were writing in terms of when they were thinking, ferreting out, like, what should we include? What should we omit? Because there's so much about Jesus' life that we can talk about. But what are the key, most important things that we can include? This story is one of them. So uh, without further ado, I want to read the passage and I'm going to finish it up and I'll pray and then we'll just get into the teaching here this morning. John chapter six, verse one goes like this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus then said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that all of these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip then answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed, uh, to get all these something to eat. Verse 8 says, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy now who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many people? Jesus then said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those that were seated. So also the fish, as much as they had wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told this his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and they filled 12 baskets with fragments of five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, Indeed, this is the prophet who has come into the world. And then perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force, that is Jesus, and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain, this time by himself. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, we just commit this time in your hands. We pray that our hearts would be open and we would learn. God, thank you for sacred scripture that informs and as read and as obeyed, uh, transforms our lives. We want to be transformed. So God, make us new uh, and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So I want to just jump right into today. There's a lot to cover here. Um, I'm just going to basically look at three specific things that kind of I think would be pertinent into trying to understand this story. Um, chapter 6 on its own is awesome. It's a very, very lengthy chapter. There's a lot of passages in it, but 
three major like movements throughout the chapter. The first part is what we just read right here, the feeding of the 5,000. The second is Jesus walking on water, which we will uh, look at next week. And then the last larger section is where Jesus kind of has this dialogue, ongoing dialogue with his disciples. And it's really just a fascinating story about the life of Jesus. But I want to focus specifically on this particular miracle. As I had mentioned, um, this is the one, one of those miracles. In fact, the way that John describes it to us is he uses the word sign, sign. So we'll look at number one, the test, because we saw that there's a test that Jesus um, offers to one of the disciples. Secondly, we'll take a look at the sign. John uses the language sign. There's seven signs throughout the Gospel of John that he articulates and unpacks, and all of these are intended to point our attention to Jesus. And then lastly, we'll take a look at some lessons. This is one of those passages that has all sorts of powerful lessons that we will look at. We won't look at, obviously, every lesson that you can derive from it, but I think enough that we'll just get our wheel spinning and hopefully motivate our hearts to devote ourselves to Jesus. So first of all, let's jump in and take a look at the test. So this is kind of verses uh, six, uh, chapter six, verses five through seven. Um, again, just to a little bit reiterate the story, Jesus, we're told at the very beginning, he is tired. One of the other gospel accounts tells us he's tired. Uh, he has literally had thousands upon thousands of people following him. In fact, uh, John tells us this detail that the other gospel accounts tell us as well, that there are 5,000 men. Most, In fact, almost every Bible scholar I think I've read would say that it, that's just men. That's, and, you know, they'll say that wherever there's men, there's women. Wherever there's women, there's going to be children. So most Bible scholars believe a conservative number are upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people following Jesus. Jesus has literally reached influencer, TikTok influencer status. He is literally the equivalent of a celebrity. People are following him everywhere he goes. He's exhausted. You ever get exhausted? You ever have people wanting something from you that you just don't have anything else to give? We're told in the gospel accounts that Jesus is tired. He goes up on a mountainside. Again, sometimes there are people that don't really quite get the fact that we're tired. You know, even you like, you, you turn out the lights, you like yawn 16 times, you're constantly looking at your phone. You're like, it's still some people just don't get the, the cue. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Jesus is exhausted. Do you know that Jesus gets exhausted? So Jesus goes up to a mountaintop as he is with his disciples to sit down, and yet people are constantly following him. And then Jesus, rather than turning away from them, Jesus turns into them. In fact, one of the other gospel accounts tells us that Jesus saw these people and he had compassion upon them. There's something that was moved in Jesus's soul that loved people. I want you to hear this. Jesus loves people. No matter who you are, no matter what type of circumstances you're going, Jesus loves people people. So we see that Jesus is surrounded by all these people. There's some details that take place. He goes up onto a mountainside. We're told in verse 4 that the Passover was at hand. This is one of three Passovers, by the way, throughout the Gospel of John that we see Jesus participating in. And then we see also that Jesus then turns to this guy by the name of Philip, one of the disciples, and asks him, why Philip? Probably because Philip was from this particular region. And again, you know, if you're going to find out what are the best local eats, you talk to person that lives in the hood. Like, he goes to Philip. Hey, you live here. You grew up here. What are the good places that we can go eat? And Philip's like, are you kidding me? There's 20,000 people. My city is 200 people max, my village, right? Um, and the region that they were in in that particular moment was based upon archaeological digs. We're talking between 200 to 500 people. It was really, really small. So imagine 20,000 people descending upon this village. Uh, it, literally, there's no way to be able to meet 
the needs of all of these people. So Jesus asked Philip, but what I love about this passage is that Jesus asked him, where are we going to buy bread? And Philip, he's obviously punting and trying to figure this out. But it says this little detail that Jesus asked this knowing exactly what he was going to do. Jesus knows what he's going to do. And, and again, I love this. Why does Jesus put Philip to the test? It's not, a, it's not a test in terms of like trying to make him fail, but it's trying to point him to the fact that, yes, there are deficiencies. Yes, there are obvious elements on the stage in front of you right now that will not add up. Yes, if you try to calculate it and try to fabricate it and try to make it up, it will still not be enough. But Jesus' whole point, I believe, is to say, I'm the factor in this equation that will literally make the difference. That seems to be exactly what Jesus is trying to get Philip to acknowledge and to identify. So number one, we see this idea of the test. So again, we're told throughout Scripture often, there are moments and times when God will test us, not in order to tempt us, God does not tempt us with evil. He doesn't tempt us towards evil. He tempts us away from evil or tests us so that we would walk away or leave or run from evil. He does sometimes test us in order to draw out from us confidence and trust, not only in him, but also simultaneously acknowledge the deficiencies that we're trusting in or holding on to that are actually going to let us down or fail us. Why does he do this? He loves us. He loves us. He knows that ultimately we will never find fullness of life apart from him. That seems to be what's happening here. Now, that leads us to the next thing, because the idea that is, I think, preeminent in the passage here is that whatever takes place in this particular unique miracle is it's described by John as being a sign. This is a really important thing to just consider here. Now, again, the concept of a sign is not new to the New Testament. In fact, the word sign, I think maybe one of the very first time it, times it appears in the Bible, is connected to what's called the Exodus. You guys are familiar when God calls the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, he rescues them and saves them. And what we see within this particular interaction, that God delivers them by way of the pronouncement or by way of the action or activity of these signs. We see the signs that were done against Pharaoh. The water during the blood or the frogs or the Passover. All of these were basically described by Moses and the Old Testament writers as quote-unquote signs. So whatever's happening here, uh, I think John wants to connect your as a reader's mind, to this other word, sign. That something, it involves God stepping in, God taking charge, God moving, God flexing, if you would, doing something for others that they themselves cannot do for themselves. That seems to be what's happening here. Now, when John uses the language, sign, this is what Jesus was doing, it was a sign, it seems to be this, this comparison to connect Jesus to whatever Yahweh of the Old Testament was doing. So again, already you're beginning to kind of follow the storyline that John wants you to see something about Jesus. That's the really important thing to note. Uh, again, John tells us over and over again why he wrote this particular gospel. He wrote this gospel and chose the specific uh, details about the life of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the uh, signs of Jesus is because he ultimately wants you, as you read the story about Jesus, to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's his, his hope, so that you would place your confidence in him completely. Um, and this seems to be John's point. But the whole idea of a sign being brought forth 
Um, this links, no doubt, to this Old Testament story, which, again, if you were to go back, there's, there's two major passages you can write down and maybe read these on your own time later. Numbers chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's the story that God uh, tells of the people of Israel that when they come out of Egypt, um, the people are challenging Moses. Moses, we're hungry. We want to eat. Again, there's incredible parallels going on here. Then Moses actually goes to God and he's like, God, where am I supposed to find enough meat to feed all of this massive multitude of people? And guess where Moses is also standing when he has his interaction with God? On a mountainside. Again, all of these little details are intended to draw about a comparison between Jesus and Moses and the work that Yahweh God was going to do. Why? Because again, John is dropping these hints so that you and I, as we're following, reading the story of Jesus, that we would come away and realize Jesus is not just simply a great preacher or a prophet. He's far more than that. God is working and moving on his behalf through Jesus to do something for others. And this seems to be what's taking place. So again, some of the ideas that we see there, there's a hungry, hungry multitude in the Old Testament, as well as this group of people that John's writing about. They're in the wilderness. They're on a mountainside. You see Moses asking God where he's going to get food. We see God providing uh, in those passages the bread from heaven called manna. Again, in the story of Jesus, uh, where does the bread come from? comes from heaven's hands. Like, the, the comparisons are, are obvious. And then lastly, we're told that the 12, the, the baskets that were brought up afterwards, God provides leftovers, 12 baskets of bread were left over for providing further provision. Uh, one commentator I had read says this, and I'll just read this, says, given the importance of the number 12 in Israelite history, uh, Israelite history uh, 12 tribes of Israel, the number of the baskets is therefore significant. It's considered, quote-unquote, the perfect number, or a perfect number, symbolizing God's power and authority, indicating ultimately that Jesus' provision is enough for all. This seems to be the point that's being put forth here, that Jesus has come to provide for those that cannot provide for themselves. In other words, Jesus is taking upon himself the role, you ready for this, that Yahweh God has always taken upon for himself throughout the Old Testament depictions of God. This is a pretty bold statement that Jesus is clearly trying to communicate. So much so that people are literally following Jesus around. Uh, later on in the story, we're not going to get to it today, Jesus actually um, basically calls the people out. He's like, you guys are only following me because of the miracles that I can create. You're not really interested in me, what I have to say, or how I'm the representative of God. You're just inter interested in the goods that I'm able to provide. Um, but the point that I would make, again, is that Jesus seems to be setting himself up as not only this prophet, but more than the prophet, as the representative of God himself, by which, through his hands, in his life, in his body, I mean, again, the, the, the picture of Jesus taking the bread, breaking it, again, the image of, I, I, I kind of like to replay some of these scenarios in my mind. I imagine, here's Jesus, after they have this dialogue with this young little boy who brings his little loaves and fishes to Jesus. Jesus has his basket. He puts him in there. He makes this prayer. Everybody can hear it. Jesus is like, God, God blesses. There's probably a, a typical, stereotypical prayer that uh, Jewish people would pray over pronouncing a blessing, blessing over the, the, the food. And then Jesus was going to about to distribute it. And I can imagine the disciples hearing Jesus pray, God bless this food that we are about to eat. In their mind, they're like, we? We? What, we're talking about we? There's 20,000 people here. 
what does he mean by we? And then he's like, in my name, amen. Like, how awesome is that? He's like praying in his own name. Like, he can do that. He's got the goods to be able to do that. And then, and then he begins to reach into the basket, hand out the bread to the disciples. They then distribute it to these groups of people that are sitting all around, all 20,000. Imagine the amount of time Jesus reaches his hand in the basket, grabs another uh, bread out, another one, another one, another, over and over. Imagine how tired and fatigued and exhausted Jesus would have been. But at the end of the day, the bread never ran out. And this was his way of saying, life comes from me. It's so profound what Jesus is trying to convey. This is the Christian message, guys. As, as followers of Jesus, our whole aim is to look at this world and say, this world promises to deliver life and goods and hope and wholeness and affirmation, but it always fails to deliver in the long run. Jesus is the one that comes along and says, I promise the same, but I have the goods to deliver. You break my body and it will only rebound back in abundance of life back to you. Ultimately, that's what we see with Jesus on the cross, giving his life, giving his body. Prior to his death, he sits down with his disciples. He takes bread again, breaks it, distributes it to his disciples and says, this is my body, eat of it. Again, this is probably another reminder that man shall not live by bread alone, that Jesus seems to be going to the deeper hunger that we all have. It's not just simply living off of bread and food and elements like that in our world, that we, there's a hunger that supersedes or transcends the hunger that we oftentimes just simply look at and feed most regularly. Jesus seems to be going really the very heart of this thing. There is a deep ache and a hunger in all humanity's heart that I alone am able to satisfy. Everything else is a counterfeit. Everything else is a parody. Everything else will fail. Everything else has a timestamp. Everything else has a shelf life. Everything else promises much, but can only deliver little. Everything else will make extreme demands from you, but not be able to give you what it promises. I alone am the one that has come that will give you everything you need as it destroys and takes me apart. In order for you to live, I will be distributed so that you will live. This seems to be the message that Jesus is saying. So number one, we see the test. Number two, we see the sign. And then lastly, I want to really kind of think about some of the lessons that are there in the text. I think the big main idea that seems to be conveying here is just the simple fact that Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is more than enough. I love this, but God loves it when we pray God, I don't know how you're going to take care of this, but I'm going to continue to reach my hand in the basket, just trusting that you will provide. I don't know where the resources are going to come from. I don't know how you're going to manage to take care of me. I don't even need to sit around and calculate it all. I just, I know that you are a good God who loves me and will take care of me. And this seems to be the message here, that Jesus is very clearly more than us. Some of us are struggling with Jesus even being enough I'm telling you, he is more than enough. He's not just enough. He's more than enough. He's not just going to meet your needs. We're also even told in the story that we see that Jesus also takes care of those that, of what their wants, not just simply taking care of their needs. We'll get to that in just a second. So 
for many of us, you might find yourself in a particular situation where if you're not married, you're saying, I need something more. That's okay. Jesus is more than enough. If you're in a marriage that's under-delivering what your expectations were, it's, Jesus is more than enough. Or you're stuck in a job that's underpaying you or undervaluing you. Guess what? Jesus is more than enough. Say you didn't pass your final exam and now you've got massive amounts of student loan. Jesus is more than enough. You're trying to figure out life and how you're going to make payments on the house and how you're going to carve out your future. Jesus promises to be more than enough. You're trying to figure out how to make the business viable. Jesus is more than enough. You're in a body that's broken and just messed up. Jesus is ultimately more than enough. This is the message of the gospel that God promises to do for us what we can't even begin to imagine. Uh, my daily Bible reading, I'm reading the passage where God describes to the people of Israel, specifically the Levites that were called to be this priesthood of people there within the people of Israel. And God keeps telling them, as you give to me, as you devote yourselves to me, I will take care of you. As you keep my laws, if you keep my commands, in other words, as you live in relationship, in obedience to me, I will provide, I will be your daily provision. That's the whole concept of the Sabbath. The world in which we live in today is a world that's ruled by pharaohs and sons and daughters of Pharaoh, which says there is no day off. You must work. You must slave. You must make your own bricks. You must be a slave to the system that never, ever sleeps. But God says to his people, take six days you work and the seventh day you rest. Our culture says if you take a rest, then you don't pay the bills. God says if you work six days on the seventh day, you rest and you obey me, I will promise to take care of you. This is baked into the very fabric of how God says the world works. We violate the world. We try to reboot the world or create another world that's in opposition to God. Then we are left to our own devices and ultimately our own demise. We're, we will just consistently, regularly, repeatedly exhaust ourselves. And maybe that's where some of us are today, just simply exhausted. And the invitation of Jesus is to say, come unto me, all you who labor, all you who are tired, all you who are exhausted, all you who have been trying to milk substance out of this life, or you're hungry and you're constantly turning to false food to somehow satisfy the deep ache in your soul, Jesus would say, come to me, I am more than enough for you. The second thing I see as far as the lesson is that Jesus no doubt cares about your needs and ultimately your wants. Again, listen to the passage. It says that Jesus, in verse 11, took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, and they ate as much as they wanted. This is a feast. There's no scarcity in this household. It was an abundant feast. What type of God is God? Is he a God of scarcity? He's a God of abundance. Now, that doesn't mean that we get the cash checks and somehow make demands upon God and live in any form of luxury that we think. That's, that's, that's a false way of interpreting or trying to understand this. But the fact of the matter is, is that God is a God of abundance. And there are these moments when God flexes and we see the abundance of God pour out in incredible ways where God just simply takes care of those people. And not so much that he's just simply taking care of what your needs are, but yes, he does even care about your wants. What are the desires? Of your heart. God actually cares about these things. 
And I wonder how many times that our prayers are not working or we feel as if they're dysfunctional because we treat God like a cosmic vending machine as opposed to a father who loves us. In other words, we go to prayer only as a means of asking something of God. Now, again, don't ever turn away from simply going to God and asking him anything. But what if, what if the main driving force that God is really after is not just simply becoming sort of this transactional vending machine that we go to to get goods from him and then go on our merry way, but actually to be a father whereby we develop and cultivate intimacy and relationship with him as our father. What if our prayers were to shift in such a way where we saw God as ultimately the end in and of itself and not as goods, as a means to be accessed by way of going through God? In other words, those goods become the ultimate end as opposed to God becoming the ultimate end. And God wants us to understand that he is a God of abundance. He does care about not only your desires, your needs, and your wants. He is a God that will ultimately, as we are in relationship with him, begin to work these things out in our lives. I was having a conversation with someone recently just about how this works. And I don't know how to describe it. All I know is that my wife and I, as we were having this conversation with someone, that, that God has always been faithful. Like, we've, for 30 years, we've lived here on the Central Coast. For 30 years, we have had to make certain adjustments and sacrifices to be able to live in this extraordinarily expensive place, like paradise, right? And at the end of the day, it's like, but how do you do that and at the same time do what you're sensing God calling you to do? Whether, whether it be generous over here, whether it be putting your kids in a private school there, or whether it be paying your rent here or living in the city that you're called to pastor here. How do you do that? And what we found over and over and over again, when we just put God first and we trust him, yes, we will make sacrifices. Yes, there might be weeks that we're eating chicken and not steak or eating beans and rice and not chicken, right? You get the idea that we will make those adjustments, but we see that God ultimately will come in and take care of those areas that we have need. That's how he works. Jesus would put it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added to you. And that's in the context of he's saying, look, so many of you guys are walking around, tripping out, stressing out over what you're going to eat, over what you're going to drink, and over what you're going to wear. And Jesus says, don't worry about these things. Your father, he loves you. He's for you. He's with you. And Jesus is this messenger from God, the God-man, come to say, God will take care of you. Trust him. Put him first. Stop trying to rig your life. Stop trying to constantly look at everything. Does it match up? Does it add up? Trust Jesus is what seems to be the message over and over and over again that Jesus brings back saying, not only cares for your needs, but also your wants. Listen to verse 12. It says, and when they'd eaten their full, they, he then told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing might be lost. And they gathered them up and they filled Twelve baskets with fragments of five barley loaves from those who had eaten. So the indication seems to be that God, again, oftentimes, nothing goes waste in God's hands. Always. God has a purpose and a plan for all of these things. A uh, third thing that just kind of comes to my mind as far as a lesson is never underestimate the little that you have in the hands of a big God. Never underestimate the little that you have in the hands of a big God. I think of Moses in the Old Testament where Moses has a staff, just this messed up, 
broken down, you know, drugstore staff that he bought for $14.99. God's like, what is that in your hand? He's like, it's a staff. God's like, throw it down on the ground. He's like, but God, it's the only staff I have. God's like, I'm going to use that staff, no matter how insignificant it is, that is going to be the staff I'm going to use to help bring about the deliverance of the entire nation of the people of Israel. How is that even possible? In the hands of God. It's always possible, no matter how small, how insignificant, how worthless, in the hands of God. You think of uh, the story of Samson, where Samson is called by God to be this deliverer, and he destroys or overcomes the armies with the jawbone of a donkey, the jawbone of an ass, it describes. And this is how he overcomes. I think of the story of Gideon, where Gideon has this army that is brought together before Yahweh God, and God says, how many people are in your army? He says, I got, you know, thousands and thousands. God says, that's too many. I need to get them down to 300. And ultimately, with an army of 300, he becomes this successful means by not his own exploits, but by the power and the grace of God. God takes what little we have. But see, this this goes against everything that we are trained to think because we have the scarcity mindset. I can't give my time away. I can't give my resources away. I can't help out. I can't even think about uh, factoring in another day in my life to devote to reading the scripture or serving at church or helping out in this food kitchen because my margin is so minuscule. And we, we, we orient the sum total of our lives in control of our own lives, constantly calculating risks and benefits, which is not bad, rather than going to the one who made us, who loves us, and says, and then saying to him, God, how do you want me to live? How do you want me to manage my time? How do you want me to think about my money and my resources? And this is what we see, that God takes what little we have, and he uses it in a big way, just like he does in the story here. This small snack lunch of this boy. And again, this is kind of a, another secondary thing, but you know, biblical scholars or critics, I should say, for past hundred years or so have kind of tried to look for ways to be dismissive of any forms of miracles that this story kind of makes them a little bit uncomfortable. Like, oh, there's a miracle that seems to be happening. Let's try to describe it away. And so some have suggested that really the miracle here is not Jesus multiplying loaves and fishes. It's this miracle of everybody being inspired by this radical generosity of this little boy who gives his Lunchables away. That, oh my gosh, the little boy did this. This is incredible. I'm going to go whip out my, like, you know, granola bar, and everyone's going to be happy, and everyone's going to eat. Uh, the, the, that's not the miracle. The miracle is that Jesus steps in and does something beyond what we can ever even imagine. With very, very little, he feeds a multitude. Lastly, uh, we see that Jesus ultimately showed kindness. And this is, this is amazing to me. I made reference to this earlier. But Jesus showed kindness to people that were only interested in his stuff, not him. This, to me, is honestly like one of the, one of the biggest miracles that's mind-blowing to me. Jesus knew who was following him. I mean, there, you got to understand that in Jesus' life, he had this unique uh, inner circle of people that were deeply devoted to who he was. We call those apostles. They were sent out by Jesus. They were really devoted to all that Jesus had to do. Um, and then there were just massive amounts of people. They were called disciples. And that could be between hundreds, if not thousands of people. Uh, they were listening to what Jesus was saying and really trying to take it to heart and follow him. And then there was sort of this larger circle beyond that that was just curious. They were curious about what was going on. Again, they didn't get a lot of, like, 
like really, really interesting like YouTube content back then. So they were always looking for something that would keep them entertained. And so you get a guy like Jesus who shows up on the scene and he's healing people. He's making food. Of course, talk about food scarcity. We have no clue what food scarcity is today in California. No clue what food scarcity is. Back in the first century, everybody had food scarcity. Unless you were the elite of the elite and you had storehouses. Most people were not. And so the idea of not having food, the idea of having this incredibly articulate uh, teacher create food, of course you're going to follow him. And this is exactly what's happening. But most of these people, they're not even interested in Jesus. In fact, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus even turns to his own disciples and they kind of raise some questions about what Jesus is doing. And then Jesus asks them, are, are you offended with me? Have I offended you? It's a phenomenal story we'll get to when we do. But the point that I would make is that there were so many people that were curious about Jesus, interested in Jesus, but they were not interested in following Jesus with the sum total of their life. There were certain elements and facets of Jesus' life and existence and miracles that were just just brought about certain peak of curiosity in people's mind, just as it would be for you and I. There were people back then that followed miracles, not the Messiah. It's why I would say, can God do miracles today? Absolutely. Is it a bad thing to simply follow miracles for the sake of miracles? Absolutely. We don't follow miracles. We follow the Messiah. Where the Messiah shows up and does stuff. Sometimes miracles will happen that will blow our minds. But just because there's a miracle there does not mean that the Messiah is also connected to this. But you have this massive amount of people that are following miracles and not the Messiah. But even still, Jesus shows kindness to them. This is mind-blowing to me. Because this is the type of God that he is. They wanted his hand, but not his heart. They wanted what he could do, but didn't want him. They wanted his kingdom, but not him as king. And even still, into that whole situation, Jesus says, here's some food. Eat to your full. Enjoy it. It's my blessing to you. This is, by definition, God's kindness and generosity and grace at work. This is what the gospel is all about. God so loved this world as self-centered and as egotistical as we are as human beings, as much as we have contributed to the brokenness of this world and the profaning of his good creation and the vandalization of all that he had created and said, this is good, and all the different unique ways in which we try to eradicate or be dismissive of his ways or who he is or to recreate certain boundary lines and say, we don't like that, we're offended by that, we want to make it our own way. All of that still, nonetheless, we have this radically unstoppable love of God that says, I will keep giving and keep giving and keep giving and keep giving. Because his aim, his hope, is that in this radical display of love, that we would stop trying to define life on our own terms and see him as this generous king who says, come to me. In your brokenness, in your pain, in your loss, in your grief, in your anxiety, in your despair, in your sickness. And I'll heal you. I'll give you life. At what cost? At the cost of him laying down his life. Him breaking the bread. Him distributing himself 
to all who would eat and feast. He is a God of radical miracles. This story is so good, and I'm done. And I want to invite you to just think about and to marvel, just marvel. Like if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, my hope would be this morning, as such an amazing story as this is, that you would do some assessment of your life and ask questions like, what are you devoted to right now in this world that's, that's feeding your soul? What is it feeding you? Is this vending machine food? Is it just garbage? Is it actually satisfying the deepest hungers in your soul? Or is it having side effects that are making demands upon you and keeping you locked in a system of brokenness and despair? Jesus invites you to turn from that, to turn to him, the one who gives life. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, my hope would be that the display, the picture of Jesus on display here would just so capture our hearts and our attention that would remind us that Jesus is worthy of following with everything we got, all that we are. Christianity is not just about having certain thoughts about who God is. It's not just simply looking at Jesus and being like, what is the amazing guy, rah, rah. It's saying he is king over all things. And I want to feed my, I want my life to be fed off of who he is and to be sustained by all that he offers. Therefore, I will posture and position myself consistently in that place where I'm consistently and regularly feeding from his hand. Because he alone has the words of life. He alone is life-giving. So, but we all stand. I want to pray over us, and then we'll dismiss y'all. Jesus, we come to you even now, and we just confess our need for you. God, we acknowledge those areas in our lives that we feel and we sense brokenness. Those areas in our lives that we feel insufficient or insecure or it's not stacking up or measuring up. Or we look at areas in our lives and we just, our, our, our number one identifying factor is that it's, it's very, very small. It's very insignificant and very worthless. But God, from this story today, would you just stir and provoke faith in our hearts to realize that no matter how small, how insignificant, how minuscule something may be, in your hands, it can become something that will feed multitudes. You alone, Jesus, are the Savior. You are the Messiah. You are the one that has come to give your life for us. And God, I pray right now for anybody here that would be far from you, that might not know you, and that's you. I just want to invite you. All you have to do is, the scripture just describes, uh, if you just confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. I mean, there's no magic trick to this. It's literally just saying, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to live that out. I don't know what type of shape that takes. I want you to be my Lord, and I want to be free from all of these other loyalties to all of these other things. I want to be free, and I want to serve you. If that's you, I want to pray specifically for you, and then we will wrap up. So Jesus, if there's anybody here this morning that right now in their heart, they're just crying out to you for help and for hope, meet them right where they're at. God, for those here that are devoted to you, God, cause our hearts to be deeply devoted to your ways. We love you, Jesus. 
We thank you for what you've done to come into this world to rescue us. So God, right now, we ask for your empowerment and your strength so that as we scatter, would you just empower us so that we could be people that show forth your goodness, your kindness, your love to all that we meet. So for your sake, Lord, do this. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.